book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8. If you were here last week, you noticed that we are reading the exact same scripture. I call it a mulligan, a redo, or in musical terms, a reprise, because there was just too much meat left on this bone. And so I want to go back, and we're going to read uh, all of chapter 8 once more, and I'm going to preach just a section of it to you. Hebrews chapter 8, it's in the New Testament, almost to the end of the Bible. The Bible says this, it says, Now the main point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest, a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a high priest, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of that which is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. Quote, see to it that you make everything according to the patterns shown to you on the mountain. End quote. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old covenant, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another but God found fault with the people and said, quote, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. I want to ask you a question this morning, uh, which is, do you keep your covenants? Do you keep your covenants? Well, in order to answer the question, we need to understand what a covenant is. Often covenants get confused with this other C word called a contract. A covenant and a contract are these different things. A covenant uh, is, a, is more like an unconditional promise. And a contract is something where both uh, parties agree to a set of conditions. If the conditions are violated, then the contract becomes null and void. In the Bible, we see uh, human beings covenanting with one another. And we see God covenant with human beings. But ultimately, in the scriptures, we constantly see that human beings are not covenant-keeping creatures. We may be covenant-making creatures, but we're not covenant-keeping creatures. Uh, we see this uh, very clearly laid out in Jeremiah 31, and then again in Hebrews 8, where it says uh, that God made a covenant with his people. 
but they did not remain faithful to my covenant. You see, we're prone to think of covenants as uh, two-party things, and they are indeed two-party transactions. But in the Bible, they are always God's covenant, my covenant. They are something God initiates, God pledges to do. God is always faithful. There are consequences to our unfaithfulness, but they never negate the actual covenant. They never uh, remove the covenant. In fact, what we see is that God continues to say, he continues to call it my covenant. He doesn't ever call it our covenant. You see that in in Hebrews chapter 8, which is quoting Jeremiah. In verse 9, he says, they did not remain faithful to what? My covenant. Not our covenant, my covenant. God never says, look, you broke the covenant, and so the covenant doesn't exist anymore. You broke the covenant, and so the covenant has been withdrawn. What he does say is you broke it, and you will suffer consequences for it. Some of my doing, some of the natural consequences and ramifications for your actions. We see this uh, very, very clearly in um, Jeremiah 31. If we read all the way to the end of the chapter, we saw uh, where Matt read it to us. And it says, God says, as long as the sun stands in the sky and the moon stands at night, as long as the waters uh, stay in their courses, I will never forget my covenants. If you can undo the natural laws of the universe, only then, only then will my covenant fall apart. My covenant is stronger than gravity. It is more real, more permanent, more dependable than the laws of mechanical physics. God is saying uh, again and again and again that he will he is kept he's kept the, his end of the covenant even when we have been unfaithful God has remained faithful. The closest thing we have in the modern world to covenants is probably our marriage vows. You remember marriage vows. Some of you have uh, said them. Others of you have, all of you have witnessed them at some point or another. When I covenant with my wife, when I promise my wife something, for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife. With all that I am and with all that I have, I honor you. When I'm uh, giving marriage counseling uh, to folks, I will ask them often, What does worse look like? It's easy to imagine better, right? Better is like me on the back of a 55-foot Cape Hatteras uh, with a sailfish and a marlin hooked up at the exact same time, and Jack's handling one, and I'm handling the other, and Claire's running the boat. (laughs) But what does worse look like? What does worse look like? Because I'm promising worse, and I need to know what I'm promising. I'm promising in sickness. I'm promising in poverty. I'm saying there is nothing in life or in death that will null this promise. That's what I told Claire on our wedding day. You ever stop and let that just wash over you that I have made a promise that I cannot get out of? That like I I left myself no out. At least I didn't. I didn't write in this condition like, and if you do the same. Most, but in our day, um, we continue to, to, to confuse covenant and contract. And so we get to the point where often in a marriage contract, uh, we start to think, you broke the contract, and so the contract is void. The contract is gone. You didn't hold up your end, and so my end is, is severed as well. But God doesn't think of it that way. God thinks of it, I made an unconditional vow to you and your 
And your faithlessness, your faithfulness does not change my vow. It just changes the way I have to fulfill my vow. Your faithlessness, your unfaithfulness doesn't change the vow I made. It just changes the way in which I will have to fulfill my vow. God actually uses this illustration of marriage in this text. In Jeremiah 31, uh, we saw it. It would be in verse uh, 32 in Jeremiah or verse 9 in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. They read different. I don't know if you noticed that, uh, but when Matt read Jeremiah, it says at the end, it says, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, even though I was as a husband to them. You'll notice in Hebrews, it probably says in your Bible, uh, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them. The reason for the difference is there are two copies of the Old Testament. One is in Hebrew, it's the more ancient of the two, and then one is in uh, Greek, it's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint reads uh, the way Hebrews did. And Hebrews has that copy of the Bible, so they quote it. He quotes the Greek version, not the Hebrew version. But God is saying, just like a husband, I chased after you, even when you remained unfaithful to me. God knows we broke the covenant even before... We knew we broke the covenant. God knows that we can't keep the covenant. And so every time uh, God shows up in the Bible to make a covenant, uh, he does it all on his own. It's fascinating, right? When he makes a covenant with Noah, God says, I covenant today with you to never destroy the earth. What does Noah say? Nothing. Or probably the most profound illustration is when God covenants with Abraham. You remember uh, God leads Abraham up to this place? And they bring the animals for sacrifice, and they cut the animals in half, like straight down. Like they, they cut the, I'm not going to get too graphic. They cut the animals in half, and they laid half the animal on this side, and half the animal on this side. And then what would happen in an ancient human-to-human uh, -human covenant is both parties would walk through the slaughtered animals to say, if I do not keep my half of the covenant, you can slaughter me the way I slaughtered these animals. If I don't keep my side of the covenant, cut me in half. And so God and Abraham come together to make a covenant, and they kill the animals, and they cut them in half, and they're there. And when it comes time for Abraham and God to walk through the slain animals together, you know what happens? Abraham goes to sleep, and God walks through the slain animals for both of them. You see, in the Bible, from beginning to end, God is preparing us to realize that God will keep covenant, not just his side of the covenant, but God will keep our side of the covenant as well. God is preparing us for this. God uh, is going to continue to chase after us, to woo us as a husband who has been disdained by his wife. Like the Old Testament prophet of Hosea, he will chase us down in our unfaithfulness, in our prostitution. He will come. He will woo. He will pursue. He will romance. He will restore. Hosea chapter 2 says it this way. See, now I will draw Israel to myself. I will take her to a private place and I will speak tenderly to her. I will romance her. God will not coerce he will only woo. And we see that this is going to happen. We see it from the very beginning when Moses breaks, makes the covenant, the old covenant, that Moses knows the people cannot fulfill the covenant. And so he says, uh, you will see uh, that 
uh, you're going to rebel against this. Moses anticipates the new covenant. And Hebrews is wrestling with this. Why does Moses and the whole Old Testament anticipate a new covenant? And what is that new covenant? And I just want to go back to it and really dive into it again because there's so much meat here. And so the first thing it says, it says this new covenant, right? So my first point is that we can't keep covenant. Second is that God will have to keep his side of the covenant and our side of the covenant together. And then when he goes to keep both sides of the covenant, we will see this. We will see this in verse 10 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 8. It says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will put my laws in their minds. You have to be just arrested by the fact that this is something God will do. That God is the subject of all of these sentences. That human beings are the object. That God is going to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God is going to put God's laws in our minds. You see, Moses knew that this was going to happen. Moses knew that this needed to happen. You remember when Moses went up to get the law? He goes up on the mountain, but the people hear the thunder on the mountain, and they're scared to death. And so they actually beg Moses. They say, Moses, we don't want to go because we're afraid we'll die. So you go talk to God on our behalf and then come back and tell us what God has said. And so only Moses goes and hears God's voice because the people are afraid. And so they hear everything by proxy. They hear it all what, from Moses. They would hear, thus saith the Lord, but they do not hear the Lord. He talks to Moses face to face, but he talks to the people via Moses and Aaron. Go get the laws and tell us what God says. And so it says uh, that Moses went up on the mountain and he got the law. He got the Ten uh, Commandments. We see this in Exodus 34, especially verses 29 to 35. Exodus 34 through 29. And it says he came down from the mountain with the law and his face was shining. His face was shining with the glory of God. But it terrified the people to see him shining. Still too close. And so Moses put a veil over his face, and he would wear the veil until he went up to the mountain again. And so God's Torah, God's revelation was veiled by Moses. It was veiled by Moses' human nature as he then um, relayed it to them like a telephone. But the glory of God's covenant was also veiled. The shining, the, the, the brightness, the glory of it was also hidden from him. But Moses says, Moses promises in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses promises that God is going to raise up a prophet like himself who will teach the people directly. That God is going to raise up a prophet. In the old days, they would say, a prophet like unto Moses like unto Moses, a prophet like Moses, who will teach the people directly. But still, the veil remained. This veil that hid God's word from people and hid God's glory from people, it remained. And we see this really clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. Corinthians, if you're in Hebrews, take a left. Go about, I don't know, a couple hundred pages. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting at verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, says, We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. 
but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is the veil taken away. Even to this day, this is verse 15, even to this day when Moses has read, a veil covers their hearts. Verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. What we see um, the Bible teaching is that that not only did God give the law, but there was still a veil. There was still something that confused, that obstructed the view, that you could make out the outlines. You could see uh, the vague uh, shapes of it all, but you couldn't make sense of the whole thing. You could not notice and see God's law directly or God's face directly in the same way that Moses wore this face over it. But only in Christ, what happens? In Christ, the veil is taken away. It says in verse 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that is to Jesus, the veil is taken away so that we can behold with unveiled faces the glory of the Lord. We can look into the face of God and contemplate it. And as we do, what happens? We are transformed from one degree of glory unto another. We are transformed with ever increasing glory. And all of this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. We see in what's happening here uh, is that the veil has been taken away. The veil over the Old Testament, the veil over the Old Covenant has been pulled back like a bride on her wedding day. You and I have been betrothed to God and he now pulls the veil back in Christ that we might see him as he is. We can see this again and again and again, that though the Bible uh, was here preparing us for Jesus, there was still a cloud in before us. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus tells the the people there, he says, you search the scriptures because you think by them you have life, but these are the very scriptures that testify to me. And you don't know the scriptures because you don't know me. You remember what happens after Jesus is resurrected in Luke? This is important for us to understand the Bible. In Luke um, chapter 24, Jesus has come back from the dead and he appears to the disciples Uh, to his disciples again and it says in verse 45 this is a powerful verse it says and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures just before that it says he taught them how all the scriptures he went from Moses to the prophets and showed them how they all testified to him he opened their minds so they can understand the scriptures without God's help this book is not good enough to get it done Because my mind is veiled, it is darkened, it is dull, is what we see Moses told us. It's what we see that Paul told us, and it's what we see Jesus tells us. But Jesus has come to pull back the veil, to open our minds, to enlighten us and enliven us, so that we can understand the scriptures. And this is incredible, because God is putting the law in our minds directly, No longer through Moses or through the prophets. No longer do we have to hear the words, thus saith the Lord. But we hear the words, truly, truly, I say unto you. Remember Jesus said, you used to hear it say this way. But truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus teaches us as God direct. And he fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 54 verse 10, which says, the Lord himself will be their teacher. Friends, there is a world of difference. 
difference. There is a world of difference between hearing me teach you the Bible or hearing your mom and dad teach you the Bible or your granny and grandpa teach you the Bible. There's a world of difference between watching a preacher and between interacting with the text and the power of the Holy Spirit, asking God to teach you from this book. There is a world of difference. And I don't know how to explain it to you any more than like my own story. I grew up in the church. I cannot remember a time I did not go to the church. When I was in fourth grade, I had to memorize the shorter Westminster Catechism, 126 questions and answers, all the answers from the Bible, almost verbatim scripture. I memorized them all because every time I memorized a question, they gave me a Mr. Goodbar or a pack of goobers, and that was good motivation. I knew most of the stories of the Bible by heart, but I never sat down and read it. And you will not believe this, but I started reading the Bible in Mark because it was the shortest book about Jesus. And I was committed to reading the Bible, but not real committed. And so I wanted a short book. And I would read some of them. And I can remember going into class and telling my friends, like, did you know Jesus actually said this? Like, not just mom and dad, but Jesus actually said. It was like, I mean, when I found it in the Bible for myself, when I found it there for myself, it was like powerful and transcendent. Mom and dad had told me those things hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And it just didn't matter. Like it just didn't carry enough weight. You ever been there, mom and dad? Like you ever been there, mom and dad, and you've tried to teach it, you've tried to show it, you've tried to point, and it's just not going in? That was me, mom and dad trying to teach me this, Sunday school teachers trying to teach me this. But when I got in the Bible and let God teach me, oh, mama, it changed me. Here, we can contemplate him face to face and you will be transformed. Where are we contemplating him face to face? The context tells us in the Old Testament, it says again and again, it says, or just in the Bible in general, we can take to mean, it says when the Old Covenant is read. So it's talking about contemplating God in God's word. When we contemplate God in God's word, we view him by the power of the Holy Spirit face to face. And we are changed glory to glory. That's why we pray when we come to God's word that we cannot understand this. That's why Matt prayed before he read the word. That's why we pray every other thing we do in this worship service is prayer. Because apart from God's help and God's presence, it's all useless. Where can you get in God's word? I mean, there's some places you can start. If you don't know how to read the Bible, you can try, and I guarantee God will meet you there. But if you want some training, Sunday school is a great place. You can go to a BSF or Bible Study Fellowship, which is a Bible study that meets around in our community. Uh, you can come on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock in the morning or at 7 o'clock at night when I lead Bible training here at church. Or you can just use the Bible reading plan, which is on the back of your bulletin every week and has a bunch of questions to train you how to ask questions of the scriptures. But ultimately, you will need God's help. You will need God's help. And, and God knows this. And so Jesus promises in John chapter 14, Jesus promises this. John chapter 14 says um, that if you love me and you keep my commands, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Verse 17, this is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. 
Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. Verse 20, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever keeps my commands, whoever has my commands and keeps them, is one, is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. You see, Jesus knows that we can't do this alone, and so he has given us the gift we need, not just his death and resurrection, but his Holy Spirit. He has promised that he will give us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will not just come and live in us and give us warm, fuzzy feelings, but the Holy Spirit will do all kinds of incredible things. If you look at John 14, uh, verse uh, 25, it says this, it says, verse 26, excuse me, but the advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, the Holy Spirit will what? Will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. If you go to uh, John chapter 16, you'll see that the Holy Spirit will testify to all things concerning, uh, John 16 verse 13 says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And he will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he makes known to you. All things belong to the Father. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I have said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Do you see this incredible gift that you have been given a Holy Spirit? who is capable of communicating the words of Jesus directly to you through his word. You cannot break them apart. The spirit and the word are inseparable like the two lenses of a glasses. But you have one who will teach you direct. I'm never going to get through this. Moses knew this was happening. He knew we needed the spirit, not just the law. He knew we needed both. We see it especially in Numbers chapter 11. You can write that down. You don't have to go there. In Numbers chapter 11, uh, Moses needs help. And so God says, bring 70 elders to me, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and I will put it in them. And so sure enough, they come forward, and God takes some of the Holy Spirit that's on Moses, and he puts it on these elders. And they start to prophesy. They start to uh, hear the word of God, and they start to proclaim it. And there's two of them who are not even there. They didn't even show up, but God has promised because they put the spirit in his hand. They're like at work and they start to prophesy. And somebody comes and says, hey, there's two dudes who have the spirit and they're prophesying. You can't tell them to stop. And Moses says, Moses says, I love it. You gotta love this. Moses says, will you tell this to my face? Oh, I would die. I would have said all of that to my face if I were prophesying. And yet I would say to you and to all of us, this is what God has done. That's Numbers chapter 11, uh, verse, I don't know, 29. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29 says, I wish that all of God's people were prophets and that he would put his spirit in all of them. You and I know from the rest of scripture that God does this. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, God pours out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. God pours out his Holy Spirit on men and women, young and old, from the, from the greatest to the least, as Jeremiah says. And Acts chapter 2, verse 33, uh, makes the line between uh, Jesus being the high priest in heaven and Jesus being the one who can give the Holy Spirit. That's why Hebrews is making this link. And the next thing God says, we're going to roll, is that 
Um, I will put their law in their hearts. This will be by the power of the, ha- the Holy Spirit. But Moses knew that this still needed to happen, that it was not enough for the law to be given to us on stone, that we needed someone to teach us internally, not just in our minds, but deep down in our soul. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses predicts that they will rebel against God and that they'll be scattered, which is the very thing Jeremiah is experiencing. And this is the sheer insanity of sin. In Deuteronomy 30, we see God, we see Moses pleading with the people. And you remember these famous words maybe from a different sermon. But Moses says, see before you, I see before you, I lay life and blessing and death and curse. See, I lay before you the commandment of God, life and blessing or death and hardship. Choose this day, life or death. Choose this day, life or death. And you remember all the people say, life, 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 life. And yet they choose death. It is the insanity of sin that we are powerless, that our will is not capable of choosing the thing we want to do. That even knowing the good, even having God's law, we still can't accomplish it. We still choose death every single time. Every one of us choosing death. That's why the first step of AA comes from the scriptures that we admitted we were powerless over our compulsive sin and that our lives had become unmanageable. Powerless. We knew we, it was destroying us, and yet we could not do it. We could not not do it. We could not stop. You've seen this in a microcosm anytime you've witnessed addiction. But it's not just the addict. It is all of us, for we are addicted to self. We are addicted to self-will. And Romans chapter 7 uh, clearly outlines this. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is writing this incredible letter, and he says, <clears throat> I'm just going to read it to you. Chapter 7. This page. It says, chapter 7, verse 14, it says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, and I'm sold as a slave to sin. And I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do it. But what I do, that, I mean, what I hate, that's the very thing I do. He says, I know the law, and I want to do it, but I can't do it. If you jump down to the bottom, um, in verse 21, it says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 22. For in my inward inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And so Paul realizes that he knows what's right and he wants to do it, but he can't do it. And he cries out in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Who will help me because I can't do what I want to do? Who will help me? Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though I was a slave to sin, I have been delivered by Jesus. That's what he's going to say in chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by my flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. What I could not do, God has done for me. God did for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and God does it by the power of his son who breaks 
the power of sin and death, and then he invigorates us by giving his spirit. This is what he's going to go on to say. He's going to go on to say in verses 9 uh, through 11 that you now have at work in you the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. That spirit is living in you, and he will give life to your mortal bodies. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. And that spirit, verse 15, will not make you slaves so that you fall in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. You've been given the invigorating spirit, invigorating power of God's spirit. Jesus recognized the same thing in John 14. That's why Jesus says, I will send the advocate and the advocate will uh, teach you all the things. The advocate will teach you to love me and to know me. The advocate will show you the Father, because if you have seen the Father, you have, if you have seen Christ, you have seen the Father, and the Holy Spirit will do it. I'm running. Because Christ has fulfilled both parts of the covenant, we come to that last part in uh, Hebrews chapter 8, where it says, I will forgive their sins, and I will remember their wickedness no more. Remember I told you at the beginning that we cannot keep covenant. And so as long as it is on us to accomplish any part of the covenant, even if it was 1% of the covenant, we couldn't do it. Because we know we can't do what we know we ought to. And so God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. In Christ, we see God has fulfilled both sides of the covenant. takes the cup that was mine in order that I 
into this moment knowing that we are unfaithful creatures knowing that our sin that our flesh that our inner man that our ego that our id it rebels against you that we love ourselves we exalt self-will above God's will that we are covenant breakers and so our faith this morning is not in our response not in our obedience not in our belief but in your faithfulness. In your faithfulness, Jesus. We put our faith in your faith, Jesus. We put our faith in your perfect faithfulness and obedience. That is what it means to be a Christian. To acknowledge that I cannot be faithful enough or obedient enough, but I don't, but Jesus could, and he did it for me. And so I just plead the name of Jesus. Jesus, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might be united to God the Father and united to one another. Teach us to see your great love poured out in our hearts that we might love you and that we might love one another. We ask all this trusting in Jesus. Amen. Friends, not because we have to, because we get.